Chloe invited me to interrupt your group this evening. I hope to only take up a few minutes of your time, but I really appreciate that we were able to throw this together at the last minute. Um, Chloe and I actually went on a mission trip to Ukraine. Um, it was back in 2021, I think is when we decided in August of 2021. So um, it was an amazing trip. Obviously a lot has changed in Ukraine since then. Um, they went to war and a few of you went, I think last year, last summer to do a camp. And so we had a meeting with Nikolai, who is the pastor there, who is ministering to the refugees, many of them from the Almaz church that was in Ukraine that have been um, uh, migrated to uh, the western part of Germany. And so we are considering putting together a trip uh, for this summer, um, which is very, very soon, I realize. Uh, so some of you I know are already committed to going to a trip in Colombia. Uh, which I think is in July. And so the time frame that we're looking at right now um, actually is the last week of July. They gave us the date of the 26th to the 30th, but that's a Wednesday. So I don't know if that's what he meant, if we'll be at the camp um, that Wednesday through Sunday, um, or if it'll actually be the 24th through the 28th. Again, uh, we had our very first conversation about this yesterday, and they had just learned about the location that they're going to have. And so... Um, a look, what I know at this point is um, they have are hoping to have around 200 Ukrainian refugees. Um, about 30% of those will hopefully be non-believing Ukrainian refugees that are there. Um, there's lots of them in this area or in the surrounding area there in Germany. Um, and basically it is going to be a camp with these 200 individuals and it's going to be for adults teens and youth uh, and basically what they've asked is they're exhausted and they want us to come and run the whole thing is basically what i took away from our conversation which um chloe and i were debriefing after that phone call and we we're kind of thinking you know originally i was thinking we maybe take 10 to 12. Um, we may be able to take as many as 18 to 20 um, on the trip which is a really really big group to take um, and we'll have to work out those logistics but because of the amount of effort that we're going to need, um, I think it'd be great to have that size of group just so that we can actually go and really minister to these people because um, uh, obviously they're facing very, very challenging circumstances. They're away from their home, displaced, and um, dealing with all the things that are happening in Ukraine, but also here. Um, the Probably the saddest thing that I heard uh, in our conversation, honestly, was that um, there in Germany, the believers that are there have welcome them but they don't really want to um they haven't really made them a part of their church body there in germany so they don't have a lot of support from the nationals there in germany which i was kind of hoping um that there might be a way with this mission trip to maybe reach out and create that connection because of the american ties but um, nikolai did not seem very optimistic about that opportunity so um so again that's in a nutshell what i know um costs we don't really know uh, i think we were kind of Figuring based on past experiences, uh, I need, I meant to look at airfare before I came tonight, but um, I'm guessing total in will probably be in that twenty-one to twenty-five hundred dollars when you take in flights and um, and the actual time there at the camp to pay for your lodging, food, that type of thing. So, um, so that's what I know. Um, raise your hand if you've ever been on a mission trip before. Okay, about half the room. Fantastic. Um, so. Um, if you haven't been on one, uh, a couple of things that I'll throw out to you. Um, it's unlike any other experience you'll ever have. Um, and uh, I have been on a couple. Uh, I went to Mexico and then to Ukraine. Um, it's interesting because the Mexico trip, I did not enjoy as much, um, mainly because I didn't feel like I was very useful. It was a very labor intensive and it was like record heat while we were there and I hated every minute of it because I don't like that heat and so basically by the third day I was sunburnt and dead and so I didn't really feel like I went to to, to work with orphans is really why I went because that's who they work with uh, in that organization and so I was like oh I really wish that whereas when I went to Ukraine we were immersed in this culture and I just it was awesome to um, really get to know your brothers and sisters in Christ around the world and so it was just an awesome experience and so I think this trip is going to be much more like that where you'll be able to really pour into the lives of these individuals and really encourage them and say, guess what? We're willing to come this many thousands of miles just to love on you. I can't speak the language. I can't necessarily. And some of them are not going to know Jesus, obviously. So there's obviously a great opportunity to display that. Um, so 
anyways, I get really excited about it. I get really passionate about it. So um, my name is Jason Nye. I can leave my contact information if you're interested at all. Um, be thinking about it. Be praying about it. Um, again, none of the things that we would normally do with a mission trip that I've been a part of with LifePoint has been kind of worked out yet. Um, literally, Chloe asked me probably three, four weeks ago, hey, would you be interested in doing this? And I'm like, that sounds amazing. And then we just had that conversation yesterday. So, so yeah. Any qu quick questions? What's your number? 317-371-7021. Uh, and then email address J-M. J-M? M. M, you got it right. N-Y-E. N. At hotmail.com. Yes, hotmail. <laughs> is, your, is your middle and uh, middle name start with an M? It does. So, <laughs> nerdy, I'm really old, uh, obviously, because Hotman was the first, first came out when I got that email address, so that's why it was able to get Jay and I. Said, could have been AOL. Yes, it could have been. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a step up. It's a step yeah, yeah. up from AOL. So, uh, I have one of those two. So. Hey, did you have a question? Is the camp in Ukraine? No, the camp is in Germany, so we'll actually be traveling to Düsseldorf. Is that how you say it? I don't know. Düsseldorf. Uh, yeah. And then Gummerspach. It is Gummerspach, but yeah. who knows where Gumersbach. the camp site is? Right. We don't know where the camp is. They have basically said they found a place that they were working with local officials to secure. He kept calling it a base, but I think that might have been a translation thing that he was just saying. Um, it sounded like a very large, multi-building type of facility that could hold lots and lots and lots of people. So, um, but. The biggest challenge is we would all need translators because I don't know how many people here speak German or Russian or Ukrainian. Um, I guess probably zero. So that's why we need someone there to communicate um, with as we're doing teaching and doing all those things. So um, the other question or one thing I wanted to point out is because of the different age groups, if you have a heart for a certain group, like oh, I really want to work with kids or I really want to work with teens or I really want to work with adults, those are the type of people that we'd love to be like, okay, here's your team and you're gonna go and you'll have a lot of input on what we will actually do because um, they don't have like a set program. They don't like, oh, we're gonna talk about the Book of Acts. And none of those things have been determined. It's really just gonna be, hey, we've got this group of people, we're ready to work. Here's what we're bringing and we'll figure it out from there, so. Any other questions? Anybody? Um even the slightest bit interested, please raise your hand. We've got three, four. We've got some fours. Yeah, you've already got your passport. The one thing I would say is if you've not done a mission trip with the church, um, they do offer financial assistance to those who are doing a trip if you're as long as you're a member of the church, although I think it, they extend beyond that um, now. Um, but. If you are a member, you can apply and basically they can cover up to half the trip um, often. And so, again, they encourage you to raise your own funds, um, but um, it's usually pretty easy to get that if you're just one individual, I feel like. Reach out to family and friends, and if you need help with that, let me know. I've done that multiple times too. So, um, total trip time I'm thinking will probably be like 10 days because, or seven to eight days probably, because we'll probably fly in at least one or two days before the camp. We'll be there for five days for the camp and then one or two days after, so if you count all those days together, yeah, it'll probably be close to uh, nine days or so, um, just because that's a long flight over there and you want a day to, okay, we're in Germany now, you know, that's a deal, so. Awesome. You take at least one day to recover. Yes, yes. Um, when yeah. do you want to know interest by? Yeah, that's days? a great question. Like, t tomorrow would be <laughs> <laughs> um, So, like, you can find me at church. Interest or commitment? Interest is all I really want to know at this point because really what we need to figure out is like how many people could I potentially get. I'm going to go to the college group tomorrow at church and ask them the yeah. same thing, give them the same spiel, um, and try and get some other people because I think, again, having a young group there would be awesome. And then um, we're going to identify a few older individuals like myself that might be able to kind of supplement in there just because, again, it'd be great to have you know some music talent, some different type of things that people could fill in and, and fill those roles. So. Um, that's been successful on other trips so that's kind of again brainstorming all at this point so the sooner the better um, but no financial or like hey I have to have an application in yet but we'll we might be figuring that out hopefully in the next week so that we can then disseminate that information so again thank you for writing that on the board cool. so um, 
don't hesitate to call, text, email me at that thing, and just put on their Germany trip, and I will follow up with you and keep you posted as I learn more information. So, cool. Thank you very much. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you all so much for letting me catch your party. enjoyed the book at least just throwing that out there was yes, it a good book yeah somewhat <laughs> we've talked <laughs> all right that's good um only josh only josh yeah he's the only person there you go josh if we get one person it's been worth it. all right so what's some questions that we had from this week's reading sam <laughs> I, I should have waited but <laughs> All right. Um, that's the one I've been waiting for weeks for. Um, is online church wrong? Not online church in the sense that you don't meet, but online church in the sense that you listen to a sermon via an online medium and meet in smaller home groups to fellowship and work through the message. Um, I might play devil's advocate for it. I've been talking with, I don't actually believe it. I actually hardly disagree with it, but I've been talking with a pastor who's considering taking their church in that direction, a sermon into like small groups meet in homes. Is that an acceptable? Well, so like meeting, listening to the sermon, and then small groups are eating? Like no. what are you talking about? No. You're talking about going to a house. Listening to a like sermon. Us here listening like to a live stream? Jim live stream. preach. Yes. <laughs> why is it a good idea? Why is it bad? Online church is an oxymoron. Just, mm. just and why do you think that? <laughs> I, I love the microphone. Church needs to be fellowship. So if you're, and, but if you're fellowshiping in a smaller group, it is fellowship. Is it just small groups and gen, like just small groups? Yeah, how small? Go out and have, how small? It's, it's under five. I mean, so here's my thoughts. Here's my thoughts. I'm not even a fan of two services. Because I think the whole congregation should be together. Listening to it. So yeah, I agree with that. But sometimes physical issues you can't have. I mean, we could get everybody in the church. Sure. I mean, I mean, there's exceptions where exceptions are due, but for the for the like sake of generality. I think the congregation should be together. You know, like ideally, all of everyone in a community should go to the same church, right? Obviously, that's not practical. I'm, I'm gonna play devil's advocate here, right? So what's what's to say that let's it's five people, right? And you bring up a good point. Two or three are gathered, right? And Paul wrote to the churches of Rome because they couldn't all be in one big church. So it's a bunch of individual little churches within the city of Rome. How is that different? Well, I'd assume they're more spread out. Like, how spread out are they? Was it right down the street? Or was it across the entirety of Rome? Or they couldn't physically travel there, you know, in three hours or so? Um, Hayden. Yeah. So, to that question specifically, my thought on the other thing. One of the uh, challenges is if you are watching a sermon, which can totally be gospel truth and all that, the content is not the issue uh, generally, but the format means that if you've got like 10, 15 people in your house and then you're listening to a sermon, that means you have likely no specific authority, so you don't have that shepherd of your flock giving you the message that week so you can go to them and work out life issues and have church discipline say one, I would call that multiple different churches, not one church meeting in a different home. I would call that if there's five homes, then it's five different churches. But um, as far as listening, if you have something like what Hayden was saying, I agree with your that what you took issue with. Um, if you have someone in each home who is an elder, who is in that specific home church, is still giving some sort of 
servant in concurrence with that, then I wouldn't necessarily have a problem with it. I think it's odd that you would be listening to a sermon and then also having mm-hmm. like supplementary just discussion yeah. and then like another sort of short sermon. So I think it gets weird. <laughs> and for exactly the same reason you said, you have to have at least one elder in your church mm-hmm. and um, and they have to be actually shepherding you as opposed to just making comment on someone else's words. Mm-hmm. Um, this is maybe a secondary question. So, okay, a church like the Creek that has like an actual remote location, I've never been to one, so I don't know if they like have elders there, but like is that an they issue do. So too? they they have their whole like they have a whole band and everything. So they, they do like their get, own worship. They do their things. own worship and then they all sit down and watch like the big screen as the whoever it is, I don't know their oh, pastor. Jared, I will skip you because you've already talked. I'm going to like because someone else because someone else has their hand up that has not talked yet. I was going to kind of like once upon a time I went to Trader's Point and they do something similar and I know that the way they do it is everybody listens to the same sermon like every single one of the churches but every single church that's like, you know, every single location has their own main pastor that's located there. And sometimes they'll go to the main church and, like, do the preaching, too. So they all preach, but there's only, like, they want all of the churches to listen to the same sermon at the same time. So that everybody listens to the same thing. So it's like, I'm just kind of, like, explaining, like, I feel like the best, I feel like the way that, I mean, if you're going to do separate locations, I feel like the way that Redeemer has done it, where they just plant a new church and set up elders in that church, and they actually have their own <laughs> church. I think that's the best way to do it. Um, anyone else? Jared. So this is just another another point on there, but like the Lord's Supper should be done together as a church. Mm-hmm. And when you're all in separate places, you can't do that. That's a church body thing. So like the two mm-hmm. services thing, that's one of the reasons I have against two services in general in a yeah. church. You should be worshiping entirely in together. I think they should build more. <clears throat> they have the funds, I think. But I, I, there's more reasons why I think you should have one service. Yeah. But um, that's just one in particular. Hmm. Though. I think the Lord's Supper is super important to be together as one body at the same time. Like, that's important. I mean, I have a, I don't know. I feel like this this might be taking a little off track, but it was more on the online church question. It's like, what do you guys think of VR church, where you have VR goggles? It's mainly people who are, like, wheelchair-bound or location-bound. They have Aww. VR you know, church services where you're in a virtual space with a bunch of other people with mm-hmm. virtual goggles on. And it's not even circumstances. And those are circumstances James. that... Oh. <laughs> 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 Sorry, Debbie. <laughs> 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 now, what's really crazy is a VR. Okay. So, so, one thing that I definitely say it's a really big what I think would definitely not work is uh, communion. You won't be able to do communion because there's no there's no giving out of uh, the bread and wine. There is no bread broken. Yeah. Well, I a small break, you can break your own bread. <laughs> are, are you talking specifically the VR though setting? To where? Oh, oh. I was talking about the uh, online setting. Well if you're technically if you're in the small group setting you could still like he was saying you could still do it, you, but then it's. You're also not. That's not the whole church. Right? Yeah. Just, so yeah. Which goes back to Jared's point. Yeah. You got also hit on Josh's point too. There would be multiple churches at that point. Mm-hmm. Emily. So, one thing we continuously talk about with this book is knowing um, your congregation in order to speak to their needs. How mm-hmm. is a, a pastor supposed to know his people if he's not with them? Um, so that is my big thing. Like, I don't think whether or not it's wrong, whatever, it's incredibly unwise, and you're end up going to get like um, 
a less effective and less healthy church by mm-hmm. So that is, like, the reason I asked that question is his point in the book is that media, and I mean, this is like 1950s media, right? How far have we come from that? But his point is that media is not able to sort of supplant that. Mm-hmm. It does, it has negative effects in preaching. I think that that is my most significant pushback. All these ethereal questions about what defines a church aside, from my experience, which is, you know, only an out of one, you cannot look people in the eye when you preach to a camera and both for the preacher and for the congregant you have to come face to face with either um, him confronting your sin or encouraging you in some capacity and I don't think that you can actually meet, you can be encouraged through I'm on me, I'm not saying that I have it myself but you, can't, you cannot meet the commands to exhort um, your congregation Next question. Uh, Lindsay. Um, so our group came up with um, a question. So I'll start with my scripture, scripture reference that we had for first, and then we'll go to the question. So we had Psalm 95, um, 1 to 5. So I'll just read the first two. Um, so it's, um, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. So we kind of came up with a question, like, he kind of argues for, like, a limit of, like, worship in, like, in allowing for time for um, preaching. And so we were just kind of wondering, like, what are your thoughts on, like, limiting the act of worship, like, through music to allow more time for preaching? Because, like, both are, like, things that we're supposed to be doing. So, like, what is the limit? directly uh, answer the question about limitations I feel like you can't restrict like church wide versus like all over you can't be like oh it can't be this certain amount but um, I feel like a good limit that each church can like check themselves with like a point of accountability is if their music is longer than their sermon like on a weekly basis there are times like during this past Easter Sunday where Life Point sang a lot and it was great because like we were focusing purely on praising our God for resurrecting his son. Um, and I feel like that's a, a good exception. Keyword exception. Uh, I mean, this is, a, this is a denominational question, really, in a lot of ways. This is um, what you're asking gets at uh, Protestant versus other Eastern Catholic faith, because Protestants are the ones that are notorious for arguing the primacy of preaching. This is where big debates 
sprung out with uh, Francis Chan a couple years ago because he started to shift his position that communion should be the center of the church gathering as opposed to preaching. And so um, this really comes down to a debate of Sola Scriptura, I think, and, and where that originates in the process of Reformation and why our tradition has placed an emphasis on the principle of preaching in the quote unquote church service. Next question. Like altar call, or no. or just having like a like time to <laughs> prayer. Yeah. Just like, yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> just like definitely not altar call. Redeemer did something probably about a year ago for a couple months, where we would do like fifteen minutes less worship, but then before the sermon, the whole like five hundred people would break into small groups of like ten to fifteen, and just have smaller prayer groups before the actual sermon. We stopped doing that a while ago. I don't know why we stopped, but we did. Ghana, they all just prayed out loud at once. That sounds Pentecostal almost. There's a there's a church that Josh, Jared, and Sam and I visited in um, in Louisville, and they the pastor opened the sermon or the service with like a 15 minute prayer. It was a long prayer. He would just kept going and going, and it was amazing. And so I, I felt like that was kind of very, like it did enable the congregation to pray alongside of him because sitting there in silence for 15 minutes is just kind of not a thing that I would feel comfortable doing. <laughs> I don't know if somebody's just like praying for that long. It's like okay, I guess I should probably join. But I don't know if that's that would be a good opportunity to like as make the pastor sermon longer or. Maybe mm. be like, hey, this next five minutes we're just gonna have silence, and you guys just, you know, pray where you are. I don't know if that would be a good thing to add to the sermon, like the service or not. But, I, mean, I also wonder if people would actually participate. <coughs> you know, that's the I I recognize I recognize I recognize that like in times of singing. Mm-hmm. There are some that don't sing. Yes. But the thing is, like, people that aren't actually worship will still sing too, because people like music, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but if if it's if it's prayer, I think people have a hard time with prayer. Like they don't know what to say, or they don't know how how to pray, or they feel uncomfortable praying, or like they don't think they need to pray. Or they've never done it before. I I feel like. Because I think about what happens during communion, mm-hmm. and I personally don't think that we're given enough time, <laughs> enough time to pray. But um, I, I just, I don't know. I just wonder how many people would actually participate in this, which is sad. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that would be um, a thing. I don't know if you could change something off of the except, like the off of the negative side of things like being like because some people are going to exclude themselves from whatever you I we shouldn't do it then I think if you're giving an opportunity that will actually bless others then you should still maybe push forward to Lexi I was just going to say that I don't think we should avoid um time of prayer if some people aren't going to do it because some people are not going to do communion some people are not going to sing some people are going to talk during sermon not paying attention that doesn't mean we shouldn't have sermons (laughs) <laughs> Some people might sleep on accident. I, I, and, and so I think prayer is a valid form of worship, and um, it's an important form of worship that is often like only done by the pastor. Actually, like that point, um, and I think it would be a really good addition to the church to have like some time of prayer because it's it's like people aren't taught like oh prayer is just talking to God, you know, like people aren't taught how to pray because there's no there's no there's no how to pray. You just you just share your heart, right? But like, if, if it was more emphasized, like in the church body, and not just like I wasn't taught how to, I wasn't taught what prayer was even, 
And I think if, if that was mm. added to the church, it would be much better for like the people growing up and just being more comfortable praying and praying for an extended amount of time. Because most people pray, like when I was in high school at least, it was common to not pray for more than two minutes. Mm. And I'm like, that's that's not that's not right. So I, I like the idea of having time set aside for prayer. I think it would be good for teaching like the younger generation and for yeah. like having a different form of worship that's <laughs> much more like personal. I agree, by the way. I just was... Caleb, yeah, yeah. Caleb and Julia. Yeah, I, I absolutely love the idea. And if people are not going to like want to participate or not know what to do, I feel like even more so you should do that then because that will incorporate more of a... Of a habitual it. discipline and like it makes you be around it because yeah. like if you are in a position where you don't even know what to say or how to pray that's the best place for you to be in an environment where there are a lot of people praying around you constantly and you can like learn from that and and start to grow within your relationship with the Lord yeah. I was gonna say basically what Caleb said um, <laughs> I mean if your congregation is uncomfortable with something that the Bible tells them push them to do it so that they get comfortable with it because they should be doing it anyways. Danny, you you had your hand up. Uh, Lindsay. Um, I was just going to say too that uh, Anna, who is one of my friends who came a couple months ago, who has been in Cambodia for two years, um, Emily and I got coffee with her when she got back and she was telling us like one of the biggest things difference for her like going to church over there is like we come in on Sunday like between services like stop you talk to people like it's very social and whatnot and when she would get there like they would have like quiet music playing but people would get there and it was like personal reflection time for yourself before the service would start and they would come in and sit down and pray and didn't have that socialization time first it was like Mm. personal reflection like beforehand and kind of taking that time before the service would start and then they would get into worship and start and then have that fellowship time afterwards so it was like that was the expectation for the congregation is that you would come in and sit down and, and so people could get there for like as early as they wanted or like so yeah. practical application thoughts on using the Lord's prayer in the church mm-hmm. for instance like life point obviously does a nice thing in creed occasionally actually pretty regularly um, whenever we do I know it's a Catholic staple though I would say no because Jesus literally right before the Lord's Prayer said it shouldn't be repetitive in prayer. Yeah. And mm. repeating the Lord's Prayer is not the point of the Lord's Prayer. The point is to pray in the model that he gives within the Lord's Prayer. It's a model, not a prayer. Oh. Yeah, it's a model. <coughs> so I think repeating it <laughs> of what Jesus was teaching. But I don't think it's wrong to recite it. Right. Like, it's good to walk. So yeah. I think we recite it as more of a... Maybe these are our beliefs rather than... Yeah. Prayer. A reminder for the believer and like for those who don't know. Yes. Mm-hmm. Anyone else? Before we switch questions, Johanna. Just real quick. I know I you did this last week too. <laughs> hey, he, he actually called on me this time. That's true. Um, but I I think that sometimes like people I feel like churches are uncomfortable with the idea of setting aside essentially silent time for people to just be there and reflect other than right before communion and like you said it's very limited time it's like maybe two minutes you know and I think part of that is we're and this this goes on with our culture as well and that's why different cultures do this very differently and there's just such a push that we feel like the people need to be entertained constantly and I think it's subconscious I don't think a lot of churches would admit that that's what they're trying to do but I think a lot of times it is like, all right, we you know, we have a very built-out service that you know every minute is accounted for, mm-hmm. and there's something because we have to keep people engaged, we have to keep them coming back, and it's like, okay, but stop stimulating for a minute and just mm-hmm. like let people just let it sink in, and I don't think that we do a great job of that across America. I'm not pointing out any singular yeah. church. I've never been to a church in America that does a good job of it. Um, but like in Ghana, it was very different. Yes, I did a lot of out loud praying, but like different cultures just seem to not be as focused Hurried. on we have to keep people engaged and entertained. It's like, no, the people engage mm-hmm. themselves. Like, mm-hmm. this is not the church's job to engage the congregation. The congregation is engaged, and if they're not, it's on them. Um, yeah. So just, I don't know, it's a different outlook. But. 
Hey, anyone else? I was just gonna say on that topic, <coughs> you know, just to just keep, you know keep dragging out, right? If <laughs> 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 anybody else has something to say, no. um, just that. I, you know, I, I couldn't agree more. I think there's like good, uh, you know, on multiple occasions, just turned away the crowds, you know, and like that is our model that we should be aiming for as mm-hmm. the church. You know, I don't think size necessarily indicates success, and I think you could argue the opposite that great success could mean that they aren't doing a job of being honest enough with their congregation and they're not turning away the multitudes and just like you're saying they're, they're playing to them they're playing for their benefits and they've got a lot of good reasons to for their own salvation you know or for their own monetary gains and for their own success and you know like it's a it's just it's all not so black and white but I just want to put it out um onto like what Joe said I think that there's also like a lot of the things that we miss out on doing like having like a longer time of prayer and reflection I think it's because they're on like a specific schedule right they're like oh yeah. we cannot like have a service that's like longer than an hour and a half or something like that and I don't know like you brought up like other countries like in Brazil like the service is like much longer than that and like one thing that I noticed here is that like people are always on a rush right like if it's like two minutes after the time, you, you you will see people start walking out, and I'm like, why are you in such a rush to leave? Like, why are you rushing out of church? Like, this should be the place that you should want to be in. Like, if the yeah, if like the preacher takes like, I don't know. I feel like the preacher is done when he's done. Like, in my personal opinion, so I think that people shouldn't be like. <laughs> Julia, you have doomed us all. No, but yeah, seriously, I think that, I don't know, I think it's a very American thing to, like, you know, be rushing things and be, like, very much, like, this is the schedule we have, we have to follow, like, we cannot be, like, one minute after, or, you know, it's going to be so bad, so, I don't know, I feel like, it would be beneficial to have like a little bit, and that's not to say like we're gonna have like a five hour service or something like that, but I think people should get accustomed to like wiggle room when it comes to how much time they spend in the church. I absolutely agree because I do know some people that like will leave right before the last song, the last song because they like wanna beat the crowd or yeah, whatever just to like show. get out. Um, <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> I to to sort of defend the practice just a little bit, and I am like on the side of what has been said. But I I can kind of understand how some people might want to limit how long or like what activities take place within a weekly sermon because they don't want to get people like idolizing the church and 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 getting to the point where. They do those things at church time, and then they go home and they don't do it because oh, that's like if you go that one day a week and then you're good, right? Because if you're if you're there for like three hours, and that's enough, right? So I, I can understand why some people might take that approach to it. Mitch, um, yeah, just real quick, I think that all like maintaining structure is still important because you have. I've been to churches where like worships being so much led by the spirit and I said with quotes because it's more of a you know prosperity gospel church anyways but it's like we're just going to cancel the sermon and, and do worship the whole time like I've been to a church service and um, I think there was some with Francis Chan where he'll just pray the whole time and instead of doing a sermon and I think there are occasions where that's fine but there's also like you know you should be under the teaching of an elder and if you only get that once a week and your elder decides, well, we're just going to pray or worship this week, and you're missing out on that mm-hmm. edification. So. The, the, the sh- this is a pivot question. Um, I'm not really going to ask it Chloe and I. I think we, we got to a good place on it. But we discussed the debate between preparation and unction of the Spirit, and mm-hmm. it seemed to be set at the heart dichotomy. Like, either you're very prepared or... orderly prepared service yeah, of course it can not be led by the spirit but orderly prepared doesn't mean that it isn't right. spiritual 
unction being left as yet. That's the that's word the that MLJ used in the material. I don't know exactly what that's called. That's setting on. Anyone else? Does this need to be a good topic? So that was our next our group's other conversation was like, should there be an altar call service, especially if we're talking about like Esther, no. <laughs> <laughs> like not limiting like what happens or whatnot. Not to, I mean I don't think there would be anywhere that like if somebody felt led to respond and say like, No, you're not allowed to do this. But like we had brought up like in um, Acts chapter two, like when there were uh, three thousand, yeah, <laughs> three thousand, um, like believers. How did that sequence happen? How did like you know there was the preaching and then yeah. three thousand souls were added? There's not really a how those yeah. yeah. People believe the gospel. That's all I said. <laughs> I think altar calls are tricky. Because, especially in today's American culture, um, I've not been to any churches outside of the United States, but um, in America's culture, we see people who are adults that live like unbelievers that will say, I've been saved when I was eight years old because I responded to an altar call. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think there's a false um, assurance <coughs> there. Billy Graham style. There's a, yeah, there's a false assurance there. I prayed the sinner's prayer. I, re- I responded yeah. to an altar call. The congregation prayed over me, you know, so I, it's tricky. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're necessarily wrong, but I think it's tricky. Erica. We kind of discussed this in our group, too, and his argument, and I have to agree with it, is he says it puts too much unnecessary pressure on the will, and you feel compelled <laughs> to act, but then it also compels you to make promises you're not ready to keep. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so his example of the man who was a habitual drunk and he like, well, if you had done the altar call that night, I would have responded, and he goes, well, I'm, I'm ready to speak with you now, and he goes, no, the moment's passed, and he goes, well, the moment's passed, it wasn't really your moment, mm-hmm. so I agree that altar calls, especially the way they are done here in America, <coughs> just put too much pressure on mm-hmm. people to make unnecessary choices when they may not be in the proper mindset to make those. And peer pressure, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was saying peer pressure as yeah. well, yeah. Sure. I, I personally believe it just creates more issues than it does positive benefits um it's a misunderstanding of theology in my opinion like it's all the assumption is let's make them super emotional and make them come up to the front and make a decision that way we can get them saved right that's that's the whole they're making a choice on emotions that's the whole point and it's completely negating the spirit Mm -hmm. and the power of the sermon (laughs) is the power of worship like everything it's all (coughs) Emotion yeah. is 100% playing on people's emotions, and it causes false assurances. It causes problems galore, in my opinion. Yeah. But very little. Chloe, and this is the last one. <laughs> Make um, it a good. Okay. Or Josh and I recently visited a church in which they had an altar call for the sake of listening to somebody sing, not for the sake of. Um, and I, being the kind of person that I am, of course, kept my eyes open and watched. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because they they did a, everyone bow their heads, eyes closed. Yeah, yeah. and I was like. Was it like, raise your hand or was it like, go to the altar? No, 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 go to the altar. And I was like, let me say. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) So I kept my eyes open because I was like, I just did. And I saw, yeah, mm-hmm. and so I saw people, like, like, a minute, maybe, and I'm like, is that an update? Yeah. Yeah. It took more time to walk up, and then there were some people where one person immediately went down, and another person immediately, like, went with them, and I was like... They yeah, didn't ask you to pray with them. It, Sometimes like, you just know. I don't know. It, but <laughs> so I, just, I, feel, <laughs> I feel as though 
and and I grew up in a church. I was raised in a church where they were altar calls, and there was there was so much pressure to go up there, not to make a decision, but simply just to pray. Mm-hmm. But at the same time. <clears throat> I felt the walk of shame every time I walked back you know, from the altar. I was like, people are watching me. Like, this is so I only prayed for two minutes. And, and so I, but, but I'm not kidding. Some of it was like so speedy quick. I'm like, did you just go up there to make a show of it? Yeah. You know? So I just, I feel as yes. though, right. I feel as though mm. in churches where it's normal or where that's like the, ten, like some churches do it every single week and mm. it's, nobody bats an eye at it. <laughs> yeah, so I just, I, I, and some people genuinely go to pray and are there for a while. Yeah. Not for the sake of putting on a show, but I just, found, I found it interesting to observe, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that there's some, some things that we can <clears throat> apply to the church, maybe. I know that LifePoint has done prayer nights, and that might be a good mm-hmm. thing to maybe do more of instead of maybe adding time to your. Um, adding time to the ser- sermon or the service that way that there's an actual event that's scheduled and more pushed um, they also have like a monthly or bi-monthly meeting simply to pray for those that are lost mm-hmm. yeah. which I think is really awesome yeah. Yeah. it's on Monday nights yeah. 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 that's a really weird ending that's a weird ending <laughs> Yeah, it is. Yeah, That was one of the That was your question. Are there any pros? Sorry. Pros. What's it called? Alter goal in here and execute. How do you fix it? I was like devil's advocate. I don't know. That I'm just curious if anyone actually that I agree or not. We do relationships do a lot of alcohols in my church. But like my understanding is like the beginning of understanding is fear. Like that's a very emotional thing in and of itself. And so I think that to deny that an emotional pull to understand <laughs> God that you're ignoring that those are emotional ties and those are and can be altered. I'm not saying they are or aren't and they are right or, or wrong. But I don't think you can so easily dismiss them one way or the other. It's almost like it's an extra biblical thing. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, there, there have been times right that I'm, I'm pretty against altar calls, and yet I have used them because it seemed to be what was the right moment. And then, you know, so like we had spent a, a an entire weekend preaching the gospel, not having pressure moments every single time but at the end it was like like joshua has those moments where he's like all right now's the time to decide are you going to serve me you can or not serve me serve god with me or the other side and so um you know there are times when and then war breaks out in ukraine right and it was a i would consider a time for it to be done all right, let's go ahead and go to Luke, or, uh, John chapter 17. It's like Luke, John chapter 17. Um, John chapter 17 is... It's John chapter 17. It is the high priestly prayer. It is one of the most mind-bending chapters that I think you will come across in Scripture. It is beneficial for an infant Christian, but also enough to drown a theological elephant in, truly. It is, it is so incredibly deep. Um, during our Saturday night calls to worship, my typical pattern is to tri- try to provide some sort of intellectual outlining to the text and then have some emotional affectional element for a consequential heartwarming effect as we move into uh, the Sunday sermon on John 17, 1 through 5. But um, I, I have to admit that I almost drowned in this text myself. I, I vacillated between not having a call to worship at all because I didn't feel like I was grasping what was happening all the way to we need an hour and we're going to not do discussion at all because that's the only hope I have of not committing some Christological heresy along the way. Um, and so this is not a call to worship that is going to pull heartstrings um, as much as it is one that I hope will sort of 
stun you into a worship just by the sheer excellency of how exceedingly beyond us God is. It's a strong creature, creator, distinction type of call to worship. It, it will, it's just going to be like, wow, it's up here. God's up here. I'm down here. And, and that has to be enough sometimes for us to be called to worship. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this right now strap on your thinking cap. Um, we've got about 10 minutes for me to introduce some of the most complex concepts in all of scripture. Um, so let's go first off, but um, with that said, I'm going to just say right now, I'm going to take some time after the call to worship to just be here and to discuss words that I throw out, concepts that I throw out. I don't necessarily anticipate you guys, number one, to grasp everything that I'm saying if you haven't been initiated in it. And then secondly, I don't necessarily expect you to grasp the text. I mean, I probably took seven hours one night, and I'm still not sure that I, I really understand what's going on here. And I just want to say that in all honesty. I mean, I hope I, I, hope I do, but it, it's a challenging text, right? And that's all there is to it. So here's how we're going to do it. We're not going to outline the text in an outlining the text sense. We're going to do a theologic outline of concepts that are in the text. Ten points for five verses, okay? Ten points for five verses. John 17, 1 through 5. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. First off, what does that mean, right? Um, so we're going to break this up. We're going to start by talking in eternity past. That is the first section of th this outline. First thing that I want to introduce to you theologic concept-wise is that God is simple. Okay, this is a long-forgotten doctrine, but the, do the doctrine of divine simplicity. God is not a complex being, which is to say that God is not composed of parts. All that is in God is God. In other words, God does not possess love, existence, mercy, and wrath. He is wrath existence, being, love, etc. We may hold up a prism, as it were, to the person of God and split out these qualities for our own ease of understanding and study, like we study the attributes of God, love, wrath, etc. But God is not composed of any parts. If he was composed of parts, he would be both dependent on the parts underneath that philosophically, but also in the broader sense, there would also be, have to some, be some force behind him composing those parts into the being of God. And so heretics to Orthodox Christians, ironically, even Arius, I believe, all of them have affirmed until recent times the simplicity of the divine being. Second theologic point in eternity past. The Son is eternally begotten or eternally generated of the Father, not made. There never was when the Son was not. He is one in essence with the Father, particularly since there are no parts to God. God from God, light from light, uh, true God from true God, as the, as the, as the creed would say. An analogy which helps me in this, uh, this situation is imagine the Father as a source of light, okay, a light bulb, if you will, a flame, whatever. And in the mirror is the image of that light. That light has eternally existed, and in that mirror, the perfect reflected image of that light has always existed. If the light existed, so the begotten image also existed in the same way that the Father has always existed and the perfect express image of his nature has also been begotten of him and existed eternally in the Son. If the light has been eternally on, the generated image of that light has also eternally existed in exactly the same way. That's an eternity past, okay? Now let's move into the incarnation. Right? We're getting all of these elements in the text here. 
Three, the son experienced hum a humiliation in his incarnation. He did not give up any of his deity, but he did assume human form. Why did the son do this? This moves us into the text in verse 1. His hour had come. This refers to his passion, his death, resurrection, leading to his ascension, coronation, and the, uh, furthermore, his intercession. This is what his hour means. Fourth, Christ prays for the Father to glorify him so that he can glorify the Father. That raises a question to me when I'm moving through the text, you know, oh yeah, we want to glorify God. What does that even mean, right? I, I'm thinking, okay, glorify God. What does that actually mean? We use these Christianese words and I actually don't even know what it means sometimes because I'm like, how does the Son glorify God, the Father glorify the Son if we don't even know what the word glorify means. And I knew Piper would have a great definition of it. So glorifying means feeling, thinking, and acting in ways that reflect his greatness, that make much of God, that give evidence of the supreme greatness of all his attributes, and the all-satisfying beauty of his manifold perfections. That is to say, we make much of God when we glorify him. And so Christ wants the Father to make much of the Son. Okay, that's difficult enough as it is, but why does the why does the son want the father to make much of him? There's a hint of clause right there. It means in order that the father, Christ is praying that the father would glorify the son in order that the son might glorify the father. Okay, that's the prayer request. Boom. Now, verse 2, Jesus grounds this request in a similar intertrinitarian event which occurred previously, if you can even apply that word to the Trinity, and undergirds the current request from Jesus. The Father had given the Son glory in eternity past by granting him authority over all flesh. And the Son would in turn glorify the Father by giving eternal life to the elect. Because the elect would have eternal life, it is, it is said that this is what eternal life is, the elect would then make much of the Father and the Son too. One commentator said it very well. This refers to the Father's gift in eternity past of authority over all humanity on the basis of the Son's prospective obedient humiliation, death, resurrection, and exaltation. The Father, therefore, granted a glory of authority to the Son in order that the Son might accomplish the Father's glory of saving a people to himself that would then glorify him. So Jesus then, speaking proleptically, 6, as if the cross were already accomplished, he says that, God, God the Father, I have already accomplished the work that you have sent me to do. In other words, you gave me all this glorious authority in eternity past to save a people prospectively on the basis of my obedience, and I came to earth in humiliation, and I accomplished what you gave me to do. Now restore me to that glorious authority that I had always had with you in eternity past because of the intertrinitarian decree which the Father had given to the Son. Now, eternity future, beginning with the ascension of Christ. Seven, point seven here. After Jesus was raised, he did not return to pre-incarnate form, right? That's not what Jesus is saying here. He didn't go back to being a disembodied logos of the Father, the wisdom of God, as Proverbs 8 would put it, I believe, Proverbs 8. He didn't return to that pre-incarnate form. However, his mortal body took on an immortal, glorified, resurrected body. 1 Corinthians 15 shares this idea. It is sown in dishonor. It was raised in glory, in honor. It was sown in weakness, but raised in glory. And when Jesus was raised in Matthew 28, what does he say? He says that all authority was given to him in heaven and on earth. And so once the son is raised to a resurrection styled body, he receives once again the glorious authority which he had always already possessed throughout all eternity past. If we confess that there was, he didn't have that authority in eternity past, we would also have to admit that there was a change in the divine being because then he would receive power that he didn't have after the incarnation. And so what is different is when Jesus ascends, he ascends to his coronation as a God-man, right? He now has flesh for eternity future. And so Psalm 2, Psalm 110, these coronation psalms are extremely relevant because they support that Jesus has always been 
always been eternal sovereign king over the universe in one sense. But when he ascended to heaven, his coronation occurred. And so the father granted him this authority on the basis of his future obedient humiliation, which he, of course, as a perfect son, did indeed do. And that kingship was consummated in a coronation upon his ascension back to heaven as the God-man. And Acts 13.33 supports this, but I think the quintessential text on this point is Philippians 2, 8 through 11. Philippians 2, 8 through 11. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. 2, 8 through 11. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He didn't count this equality with God as something to be grasped. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is a big breakthrough right here. Jesus' ultimate coronated glory will result in even more glory to the Father. Okay, that's what the end of this passage says. Jesus' glorification, coronation, as the king that he has always been, results in glory to the Father when all humanity stands before King Jesus. Jesus sits on the throne forevermore into eternity future. He is king. And Christians, as this Philippians 2 passage would indicate, are those who bow the knee to King Jesus in this lifetime. Revelation 12.5 makes this abundantly clear that Jesus is now king. She, Israel, gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Boom. Jesus ascends to the throne, and he is there with God the Father, ruling forever in Psalm 2, Psalm 110. Say this even more clearly. Theologic point number nine. In the exaltation, there are four points to the exaltation of Christ theologically. Resurrection, ascension to heaven, and then what? What is that third point? Session at the right hand of God, and then fourth is return and glory and power. So what is session, right? That is where the Father, or when Christ intercedes for us. He ascends, he's coronated, and he, Hebrews says, he sits. He sits down to make intercession for us. And notice how beautifully this fits John 17 theologically, to, to bring it back into John 17. What happens in Jesus' prayer after verses 1 through 5? What happens after that? Who does he pray for after that? He prays for himself in verses 1 through 5. Then who does he pray for? He prays for the disciples. And then he says, I don't pray for them only, but I pray for everyone who's going to be in me. And so this is what we have here, is a quick, very quick Jesus encapsulation of his own eternal Trinitarian work from glory to humiliation to exaltation and coronation and then he's going to move into his eternal work of interceding for us before God the Father. And so this is where the rest of the prayer is going in a theologic sense. Now for present time, what does this mean in application to us? What are some brief applications? One, to me it is obvious Salvation is primarily for the glory of the Trinity. Salvation is primarily for the glory of the Trinity. Salvation is also synonymous with our greatest good. But John 17 shows us that the work of the Son is for the glory of the Father and the Son. Right? Our worship, bringing a people to God, the Father, the Son doing this, by doing this, we make much of him. That's the point of salvation is the glory of God the Father that we give him in our salvation. Second, this is the most practical point of all, and I think I'm not creating anything here. This is Philippians 2, right? Be a servant. Don't look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Don't do anything from rivalry or conceit. Be humble. When Paul sees Christ being so humble as to leave the privileges of his eternally exalted state, being the Logos, the wisdom of God, Paul's initial application to us is if Christ was willing to be this humble for our good, then we should be that humble for others' good as well. Ten theologic points, eternity past, incarnation, 
eternity future and our application, 10 theologic points in five verses there about the incarnation of Christ. What I wanted to close on tonight, I'm going to read a little bit slower, right? Next time you're at LifePoint, I hope you catch on to a little bit more each time. I'm going to read through the Nicene Creed. And what I think you'll pick up on here is that almost every single one of these themes in John 1 through 5 is baked into what the Nicene Fathers wrote and what we have confessed for 2,000 years. We believe in one God, one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, one in being with the Father. Through him, all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he was born of the Virgin Mary and became man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered, died, and was buried. On the third day, day, he rose again in fulfillment of the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son. With the Father and the Son, he is worshipped and glorified. He has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy, universal, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. And so I hope that, I hope, right, I'm tempting to do justice to some very difficult concepts in a very short amount of time. I reiterate, come talk to me. I've read some books on these. I've tried, hopefully I've educated myself on these to some degree. I hope that as we go into tomorrow, you at least walk away with, wow, God is on a different level than humans. And two, I should be humble because Christ was humble. I think those are the, the two most salient points that we can take away from a text that really pulls back the veil on the Holy of Holies, as this passage has been called. Okay? All right. Mitch, you want to close us in prayer for sure. tonight? Thank you. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for allowing us to gather today in fellowship and learn more about you. Um, pray that as we go into church tomorrow, we would show up um, humble with humble hearts and You'd open our eyes to new new things about this passage, and you grant us understanding about um, your mind, and uh, just let us reflect on Christ and his humility and his obedience to you, Lord, and um, maybe look at his character and strive to be like Christ, and uh, may you have mercy on us and sanctify us um, in that process, Lord. And, uh, we just thank you for all the blessings you've given us, all the friendships you've given us, um, and we pray that you would continue to have your hand of mercy over us, and um, yeah, we just, we just uh, can't thank you enough for all that you do for us, and I um, want to thank, thank you for sending Christ, and again, for just Christ's humility, something that we could never accomplish. Um, he came down and, and did it for us, Lord, so we, we praise you, and uh, we thank you, and we pray that um, you continue with your grace and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we lose our minds here, um, can I have a show of hands?